Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, descend on us here today. Illuminate our hearts and minds that we might not only hear your word, but also prove ourselves faithful in its doing. Amen. Our message today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Hear these words. And the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house not will be not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, He has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my brothers, my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Yay! This is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. No, absolutely not. And we were having a discussion this week as we uh, committed to working through the lectionary. We'll remind ourselves that the lectionary is uh, some prescribed readings for uh, the churches in America, right? The Catholic Church follows it, the Episcopalians, Lutherans, Methodists, we all follow this together so that we're all in sync together as uh, the body of Christ. And we read these selected passages, and sometimes we have power over them, right? You can be like, oh, this one's great. I want to preach on that one. And other times you're going to leave, and Peter says, you should, you know, we're going to take that sermon, great. And then he says, do you want to change the lectionary text? And I said, no, like we're, we've committed to this. We're preaching the lectionary. And then you read it and you go, man, we should really change this. Uh, <laughs> but no, I enjoy a challenge, uh, and I certainly <laughs> try to do our best as we tackle this passage, because it has all of the all-time greatest hits of the Gospels in it. It's got people slandering Jesus. What more could you want? It's got accusations of demon possession, talk of Satan and unforgivable sin, Everyone loves that. It's classic. It's got family strife. Yes. This will pack out all the seats. Everyone will come to hear this uh, tricky passage talked about. And it is tricky. It would actually be um, easy to preach on something else, quite frankly. It would be easier to go to like what I did last week, like John 3.16, right? For God so loves the world that his sin is only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray and go home. That'd be really easy, really nice. But instead, we have this really difficult passage in our text today. Uh, it's situated in the beginning of Mark, and let's get caught up, shall we, with where Mark is going and where we are going and where this passage falls in our canon so we can wrestle with it together. 
Well, remember in Mark chapter 1, it begins with something not quite right in Jerusalem. There's a guy named John the Baptist. Nod your head. You're following along. He's out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. Jesus decides to go out and do that thing. And then he goes out into the wilderness, and he is um, tempted by a guy named Satan, right? Satan's a big character in the gospel of Mark and also featured in our passage today. And Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and then he comes out of the wilderness, and he calls his first couple disciples. People are astounded at his teaching, and he cleanses an unclean spirit. Then he heals a guy. Then he goes on preaching tour, right? He books all the big cities, London, Brussels, Berlin, you name it. And he begins preaching, and he's gathering crowds left and right. People love to hear Jesus talk. And then he heals a leper, end of chapter one. Chapter two, he goes home. And some dudes rip his ceiling apart and lower a paralytic man into it. And Jesus has to call a general contractor to come out and fix his ceiling. And there's some big discussion. More disciples are called. Then there's this whole entire bit about the Sabbath, which is when they're supposed to rest. But Jesus and his disciples, they walk through a field and they pick up some grains because they're hungry. And they get into a big theological debate and argument with the teachers and the Pharisees. End of chapter 2. Chapter 3, our particular chapter today, begins with some healings. And then there's sold-out arena around the seaside of Galilee. They can't even get a seat. It's standing room only, lawn access. And they're coming to hear Jesus preach again. Then he appoints his 12. And then he's got a starting lineup, right? His roster is complete. He's going to go up against the Yankees. He's good to go. And he is set. He's going to manage this startup really, really well. And then he goes home again. That's where our passage picks up. So there are a couple things we need to know about Mark. Mark is generally historically taken to be the first gospel sort of recorded. Prior to this, it was all sort of stories they would tell. It was talked about. Mark's written very early, and it's debated. You can Google it. I'm not going to bore you with the date because it doesn't really matter. It's very, very early Jesus material, primary sources. These people saw Jesus walking around, so they decided to write this down so that it shall not be forgotten. And this passage is only in Mark. Not in Matthew, not in Luke, it's not in John. And so we've got to wrestle with it on Mark's terms. Is that fair? I think it's fair to take Mark on Mark's word. In this passage, there is substantial debate over this passage because it's a little strange, right? It begins with talk about Beelzebub, whoever that is, we'll get into that. And then it begins with the discussion uh, about these people gathering to hear Jesus. And then they think he's gone crazy. okay. So, like, his family's outside, like, go get him before he embarrasses the family name even more. Uh, get him and bring him here. We'll, we'll take him home, right? We'll take him, we'll take him to a, a special farm where we can, he, can, he can live for a while. And maybe he'll get better, right? They, they think he's insane. They think he's lost his mind. So they come to get him. And then Jesus begins teaching in parables, which, of course, are the clearest sort of teaching we've all encountered in our life. And they lead to uh, great realization. And then there's more discussion more discussion, and this, that's really where our, um, this is a bit about the family, right? And then Mary comes to get him, and Jesus says, who's my mother? Who's my family? My family is here, the people who do the will of God. This is a difficult passage to work through. There's debate over the composition of the passage, and I won't bore you with all the details, except to say it was good to know that people did write down our scriptures. Amen? They wrote that down, and there is always a human element in it. Uh, I do believe it is the active living word of God, and we can be formed and shaped by that. But I would not be doing my job if I didn't say there's debate over this passage. Feel free to Google it at lunch and talk about it with your partner. Go for it. It's, it's great, great uh, lunch conversation. Okay, so three things that I want to wrestle with in this passage. The first is this whole entire Beelzebub thing. 
like to settle that one as best I can. The second thing that I want to wrestle with is this idea of Jesus teaching in parables. Because he gives this parable about the strong man. So I want, to, I want to talk about parables. And the last thing I want to do is this whole entire bit about being mean to his mama. Right? He's just being mean. And so we're going, to, we're going to talk about that and what that looks like. Okay, so first bit, Beelzebub. The source for this word, Beelzebub, which kind of gets conflated with the word Satan in Mark's text, comes from 2 Kings uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 2 and 6. And it's written like Baal Zabub, or God, which is Baal uh, Zabub, which is like, this is the debate, right? It's like the God who flies, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Sometimes Beelzebub is seen as the Lord of the flies, not like the novel we had to read in like eighth grade, but like the Lord who flies. And I don't really think that's a good translation, if I'm being quite honest. I think it really is the Lord of the high place, the place you can only go to if you fly, which makes a lot more sense in Mark's gospel, because you will recall that Jesus is being tempted at a high place. And who's tempting him there? It's Satan or Beelzebub. And so this is where this um, kind of etymology, this origin of this word comes from. Even more kind of convoluted and confusing is Beelzebub is actually a Philistine god. And we will remember that the Philistines, we don't know where they come from. But they give David, like King David, the guy who kills Goliath, they give him a ton of grief. And so there's this God that's entrenched in the land of Cana and still there in Jesus' day. And this is sort of in the folklore and conversation about this God of the high place. And so there's this ongoing debate about who is the God of the high place. Is it Beelzebub or Baalzebub? Or is it Yahweh? Or is it God? So we need to understand who is Beelzebub to really understand the, the kind of context of this passage. And we'll understand that it is this sort of God of the high place. And so Jesus begins teaching them a parable about a, a strong man, right? You have to bind the strong man before you can go in and kind of loot his house. And this is just a confusing parable to me, but that shouldn't be new to us because parables are confusing. And if I was being really honest, I didn't quite know how to teach about or describe a parable so I had to do a good amount of research on this. But let me see if we can break it down. Because I thought a parable was like an allegory, but that's not true. And then I was like, well, maybe it's like an Aesop's fable, right? Like the tortoise and the hare or something like that. But that's also not true. So a fable, by definition, is something that you generally uses animals to kind of draw out some sort of moral teaching. A allegory, on the other hand, probably the most famous allegory, in my opinion, is like the Wizard of Oz. That's an allegory. And it has these characters who represent things beyond themselves. So the scarecrow represents like the agrarian past. And the tin man, am I teaching you something new, tracking with me? The tin man represents the technological advancement. And the lion really represents the fear, the primal fear that animals bring us. He's the king of fear. This is the allegory of the Wizard of Oz. It teaches us something. A parable is not those two things. It's not a fable and it's not an allegory. It's really somewhere in between. What a parable is supposed to do is to make you ask the right question. A parable is supposed to get your brain ticking and thinking. A modern-day parable is the boy who cried wolf. Right? He says, oh, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming. No, there wasn't a wolf coming. Oh, there's a wolf coming, there's a wolf coming. No, there wasn't a wolf coming. The third time he cries wolf, there really is a wolf, and no one believes him. And it's supposed to make you think, have you ever cried wolf before? Or what is the, the benefit of crying wolf? Or, or should you cry wolf? Or don't cry wolf because eventually a wolf's going to come. So Jesus begins teaching in a parable about a strong man. And they're saying that he teaches with the authority of Beelzebub. 
the God of the high places. And Jesus is saying, look, I can't do that because a house divided can't stand against itself. You've got to first bind the strong man. And who do they think the strong man is? Beelzebub. And Jesus says, I've bound him. I am taking back everything that he has stolen from who is in charge of the high place in the first place. And that is Yahweh. And they probably don't get it because it's a parable. And that's okay. <laughs> right? That's the confusing thing about parables. When people say they're like a story, it's like, no, not really. It's meant to get you thinking, asking the right question. Sometimes I think the better term for a parable is like a riddle. It's this thing that you kind of sit with for a while. And it teaches you something about God as you wrestle with it. The third thing that I want to sit with and think about, um, honestly, there, I, I got to say it, there's this whole entire bit about the unforgivable sin thing. I'm just going to set that over there for Peter to deal with sometime. Uh, and he can, he can preach on that later. <laughs> there's this whole entire bit about this family dynamic and relationship, right? They've come out of, uh, um, I will say, familial care to come and say, Jesus, are you feeling okay? Why don't you come back with us and come home? We'll get you something to eat. We'll talk this all over. And, uh, and then Jesus says, behold, my mother and my, and my brothers and sisters are here. Never mind what we learn about the rest of the New Testament. And never mind that Jesus' attention uh, kind of in his duty as a son in John chapter 19. And never mind that Jesus listens to his mom in John chapter 2 when she tells him to go, you know, fill the water and do the whole entire miracle at Cana thing. He is an obedient son in that passage as well. And never mind that Mary, who is his mother, and James, who is his half-brother, become prominent figures in the church in, early, in the early Christian movement. Mark's context really doesn't frame familial love and affection as a high value. Mark is pushing towards a different goal here. Mark 13, 12 pictures persecution of disciples from their own families. And in Mark 10, Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. In some cases, Peter's happy to do that. He's like, I left my mother-in-law to follow you, Jesus. That hurts, right? Now he's left everything. They've left it all. They've laid down their nets. They've laid down their familial ties. And they've given it all to Jesus, which is ultimately the challenge for all of us, is it not? To give our whole selves to God, to find our identity in God, to find our family, as Anthony said, here with each other. And of course, we're blessed if our biological family also believes in the truth of God as well. But our family is so much bigger. It's the whole world. We are all made in the image of God. We are all God's children. Such a broader definition of family. Jesus is trying to illuminate for them. Honestly, as we look at this passage, I think Jesus is talking about a couple of things. He's talking about what brings renewal or wholeness to a situation. This is the whole entire bit about the binding the strong man and saying that this is God's place in the first place. And he's saying sometimes being a disciple can cost you something. Sometimes it can cost you something. Sometimes it costs you, I don't know, a job, or maybe it costs you income. Sometimes it costs you relationships. But being a disciple of God sometimes costs us something. But this passage is all about bringing renewal and healing and wholeness. And so far in Mark, as we've seen, it's all been about renewal and healing and wholeness. He heals the leper. He heals that person's hand. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He, he, he does all the bits. He's healing and bringing wholeness. And he's saying this is all God's dominion and all belongs to God. What I find so fascinating about this is that Jesus, I also think, as a person, is seeking renewal and wholeness. 
Where does he go in chapter 1? He goes home, and they interrupt him, right? Jesus is seeking renewal and wholeness, so he retreats into lonely places, and the disciples, like, seek him out. And he's praying, and they're like, Jesus, you've got to come preach. And he's like, can I not have a moment of peace, right? And then in, here in chapter 3, he's at home again, and the crowds push in around him. And it's almost like Jesus says, okay, all of you are my family, and we are all about seeking the restoration of God's kingdom here and now in this place. But sometimes going home doesn't bring the renewal and rejuvenation that we're hoping for. Ultimately, God brings renewal. And Jesus shows us this in multiple ways and teaches about it. Going along the lines of the parable, we should be asking these questions as we read this passage. Who's going to unite this community that they're a part of? Who's going to unite the Sea of Galilee? You could even say, who's going to unite Chapelwood? Who's going to unite Lake Jackson? Who's going to unite Texas? Who's going to unite us as citizens of the United States? Who's going to unite the world? Will it be good teaching? Will it be a clear mission and vision statement? Will it be great music? Will it be everyone agreeing on the same political party? No. No. Ultimately, the thing that you will unite us is God. It's God. It's Yahweh. Who will liberate those persons who are suffering from unclean spirits? Will it be the powers of legislation, or will it be our pride and our own knowledge? No. Ultimately, it will be God. It will be Yahweh. Who will fulfill the Sabbath? Will it be labor unions who strive for regulations to protect workers? Or will it be your compassionate CEO who sees that working 24-7 is ultimately futility? No. It will be God. God will fulfill the Sabbath. God will bring healing and wholeness. Who brings physical healing? Will it be our doctors or our, our thought process on medicine? No. Ultimately, all healing comes from God. Who will renew us, feed us, guide us, shepherd us? It will be God. It will be Yahweh. So friends, as we move forward, and as we emerge out of COVID, as we navigate a pastoral transition, as we go through a diagnosis, as we look to retire, as we welcome another grandchild, as we consider whether or not to take that promotion, the good news is that God is with us through all of these things. That renewal is found in God and God alone. That when God calls us and we answer God's call, our critics may, t- may try to deter us, but ultimately following God will bring about our peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.